Welcome to the Beyond Sunday podcast, where we bring Sunday home. Join us as we dive deeper into First Baptist's weekly sermons, discuss practical applications, and answer your questions. Hello and welcome to the Beyond Sunday podcast. I'm Jordan Upton, the Director of Broadcast and Media Outreach here at First Baptist, and with me as always is Pastor Jeff Reynolds. Jeff, how are you today? I'm doing great, Jordan. How was your weekend? It was great. I had a birthday this weekend. So did you really? I did, yeah. Man, yeah. happy birthday. Thank you. Yeah. So how did you celebrate? Yeah, uh, with my family. Uh, so we got to spend time with my parents, my aunt and uncle, and of course my wife and my son. That's so, awesome. What yeah. What is your favorite flavor of cake? Did you, did you have cake? Was it pie? Some people like birthday yeah, pie. Yeah, blackberry cobbler. Yeah. Blackberry cobbler. Yeah, my wife <laughs> made an awesome. incredible blackberry cobbler. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So I'm really excited about today's episode because we're going to be doing a deep dive Bible study into the passage that we read this weekend. So today's passage is from James 4, 1 through 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have, because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive, because you ask wrongly, to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So there are several things in there that I think are difficult to hear, but mm-hmm. also just kind of difficult to understand, which gets me excited because there are things that I don't understand that I can dig into. That's right. So the first one we're going to look at here is James 4, 2 through 3. So James writes, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So this sounds a little bit contradictory to me. What is James trying to say? I think that, that, of course, these two lines speak to different sorts of things. And, and what I think James is saying here is kind of a progression of two different things. So let's start with you do not have because you do not ask. And the idea here is you do not have because you do not ask God. Um, I think that, that here James is talking about a failure of believers to pray personally. In fact, theologian John Phillips would say it that way, that, that prayer is, is, is the sum and substance of what it means to live out our faith in relationship with God, that our prayer life ought to be constant. When the Bible says pray without ceasing, that's not hyperbole. We truly ought to always have the line open with God. You know, there are some people who think that preachers have like the red bat phone, and maybe I'm dating myself, but it was in reruns when I was watching it. Um, There was this red bat phone that the commissioner could call Batman, and you know, um, and I don't have a a more special line to God than you or Elliot or anybody else who's a believer in Jesus Christ. We all, through Christ, have access to Almighty God, and sometimes we live our lives without prayer. And, and that's a form of pride, really. It's a form of, I've got this. I can handle this. I don't need you for this, God. But, you know, Jesus says in John chapter 15 that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. 
Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. So I can I can't take a breath apart from Christ. I can't say a word apart from Christ. And so there's this sense of of utter dependence and. James is here talking about the idea of asking for something. So if I am in need of something, uh, do I approach God with that need or I, do I decide to just hustle for that need? Mm. Um, and there's nothing wrong with hustle. We should hustle. We should work hard. We should be diligent. The Bible says, honor those who labor diligently among you. But we must come with the realization that every good and perfect gift comes from above. So we go to the Lord. We don't forget to ask him. But then, James says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And John Phillips would say that this is a failure to pray properly. And so the motive behind our prayer is vitally important, that God knows our hearts. He knows every word we're going to speak before we speak it. He knows every thought we're thinking. Uh, he knows what is the true motivation for what we're asking him for. So, so if we do cross that line of prayer, that, that we're not failing to ask him, we're now asking him, we also have to come with the proper motivation. So am I coming to God with a request that is for my glory, solely for my benefit, or am I going to God with a request that whatever it is I'm asking for would be for his glory and the benefit of others. It's, it's not a bad thing to ask to be blessed. Every single morning when I drop my kids off at school, I pray with them, mm. and I pray, God, bless Griffin. God, bless Reagan. But then the immediate next line is, so that they might be a blessing. And so we recognize that, that it's not just all about us. And so the Bible gives us some, some guidelines as to, to how to pray. We're called to pray according to God's will. In 1 John chapter 5, 14, it says, This is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we're reminded of what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And so not only does Jesus call us to pray in that way, but he models that prayer for us. It's a, it's a submission to the lordship of Almighty God, that we are called to pray in faith, that we are called to pray according to the faith that God has given us, that we're called to pray from a pure heart. Psalm 66 verse 18 says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. We're called to pray in Jesus' name, and that's so vital. I love the name of Jesus, and so often we Christians, we, we, we take the name of Jesus out. We pray in your name, or we pray in the name of your son. Now, there's power in the name of Jesus, and it's not the pin number for the ATM to get whatever you want from God. I used to think that. I used to think that as long as you tacked on in Jesus' name at the end of your prayers, then God had to answer because you prayed in Jesus' name. And Jesus said, whatever you ask for in my name, you know, the Father will give you. Well, the idea is not that that is like the, the combination, the secret combination that unlocks God's willingness to give you the thing. But praying in Jesus' name means praying according to Christ's will and according to his character, so if, for example, I were to pray, Lord, bring me a woman to have an affair with in Jesus' name. Well, that is in no way according to the character or will of the Lord Jesus Christ. So even though I tack on the saying, that's not praying in Jesus' name. 
And then we're called to pray fervently, you know, and here in a couple of weeks, we're going to look at James 5.16. It says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So we are called to pray fervently. Um, you had mentioned as we prepared for this, Matthew um, chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. And what's interesting, that idea of knocking, you know, when you go knock on a door, you don't just knock one time, you, you knock repeatedly. And Jesus even tells parables about the impudence of someone who's trying to get some bread in the middle of the night mm-hmm. and uh, just that repeated, fervent prayer. Uh, God calls us to do that. So, so I think what James is doing here is, is he's not giving two contradictory ideas. He's, he's, one, calling us to pray personally about all things, but then when we pray to recognize that our motive matters and that God is reading not only the words that we're saying or thinking, um, but he's reading our hearts as well. Yeah, that kind of reminds me of Abraham and the blessing that God gave to Abraham. You yes. know, it's not just hey, you and your children are going to be magical and everything's going to be great for you from here on out. It's, I'm blessing you, and those who bless you will be blessed, those who curse you will be cursed. And Abraham and his children, the Jewish people, are supposed to be a light to the nations so that the nations will see God through them, right? That's right. Yeah, well, and I think of us here at First Baptist Church. You know, we are at the corner of 12th and Chestnut, and the first time we pressure wash the property— one of the things, um, Pastor David Tooley and I were outside looking at the sidewalk, and they were pressure washing the sidewalk. Mm. And there's like the public sidewalk that, that leads up to the property, and then there's our sidewalk that we have responsibility for. We want, when, when people come to the corner of 12th and Chestnut, we want them to feel like they're stepping onto holy ground. Yeah. There's something different. And, and it's not just so that they can be in awe of us. That's not what we want. It's so that they can understand there is a God and be in awe of him and recognize that he has come to bless them, to give them eternal life through Jesus Christ. Absolutely. So here's the next confusing passage. In James 4, 5, he cites a scripture, which the ESV renders this way. He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. However, it's really hard to tell where that passage is in the Old Testament and where he's quoting from or paraphrasing from. Do you have any thoughts on this passage? Well, it's hard to tell because it does not exist. There we go. There is no Old Testament <laughs> quotation. So so what is happening there is he is summarizing the teaching of the Old Testament. And so Robert Plummer, for example, um, writes, Robert's uh, a theologian and was actually a member of my dissertation committee. Uh, He says in verse 5, James appeals to, quote, the scripture, end quote, to support his point that God demands our ultimate loyalty and, like a jealous husband, will not share his bride's affections. Plummer says, James does not cite a specific passage, but summarizes a prevalent Old Testament theme of God's jealous affection for his people. And then he lists as examples Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, Exodus chapter 34, verse 14, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24, Deuteronomy Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 15. And so the idea here is while he is not giving a specific quotation that you can flip back in your Old Testament and say, oh, there's that line exactly, what he's doing is he's summarizing a general teaching that God has revealed about himself in the Old Testament. Hmm. 
So I want to ask a little bit more broadly about passages like this, like where, you know, it looks in the English like James is citing a passage, but you can't find the passage. So what do you do when you run into a problem like this? Uh, How do you recommend Christians approach confusing or obscure passages that can trip you up? Sure, and that's a great question. I think the first step is to recognize that we believe in the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And so if there's something that is confusing or something that that just doesn't make sense or seem to fit, what we do is we consult the entire council of Scripture. And one of my favorite things to do when I'm preaching is to illustrate the Bible with the Bible. Because the Bible, there's so many loops and cross-references and things of that nature that the Bible will always illustrate itself. And so what I want to do, if I have a hard passage, I want to go looking for what does the rest of the Bible say about this. So just as Dr. Plummer here called us to look back to Exodus and Deuteronomy, to specific passages there, um, that's what I want to do. I want to look to the whole council of Scripture, and I want to assume, at least in my mind, I want to assume a posture of belief in the Word of God. So how does this seeming inconsistency or seeming irregularity, how will God resolve this through His Word? The second thing, though, is this. We are to consult trusted faith mentors. And so you think about your pastor or your ministry staff or your Sunday school or small group or Bible study teacher or your disciple or somebody who is who is a mentor for you in the faith. Um, you do exactly what you just modeled. I have a question about this. I'm going to sit down with Jeff. He's the pastor of our church. And obviously you and I have a great friendship and mentor relationship. I'm going to ask somebody that I trust about this. And you got to be careful because it's kind of like medical advice. You can go on the internet and you know anybody can publish anything they want on the internet. So just as a physician will encourage you not to go asking Dr. Google about your symptoms, um, I would say be very careful just typing in some sort of question and going with the first answer that pops up because there are plenty of people who have aberrant theologies, some who are, are non-Christians but seeking to, to portray themselves as Christians, and even those who would fall within <clears throat> some sort of quote-unquote Christian denomination um, or claim to be some sort of Christian denomination um, who really aren't. I mean, there are plenty of cults. That are, that are masquerading. The Bible says that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. So I just really want to put that caveat in there. Be very careful about the sources you trust. And, and that's why it's good to be a part of a local church. That's why it's good to have a pastor and, and a Bible study teacher and a mentor in the faith, somebody who can help you discern these sorts of things. So, for example, I've been quoting Dr. Robert Plummer. Well, mm-hmm. I know Dr. Plummer. Um, I had him for Greek, and uh, he was part of my dissertation committee. I trust him. Um, and and then I'm going to listen to the, the recommendations that he makes of trustworthy sources. You know, it's just because uh, something is published in a book doesn't mean it's trustworthy because there are entire publishing uh, companies that will publish whatever sells, mm. not what is true. For me, there are a few that I, I, tr- I trust Crossway. I trust Lifeway. I trust Thomas Nelson. I trust Nav Press. I mean, there, there are several really good, strong Christian publishers who are going to publish good material. But then there are others who 
they're just going to do whatever they can do, sell whatever they can sell, and promote whatever they can promote to make money. And, you know, as the Bible tells us, people have itching ears to have whatever they want to be affirmed, affirmed. And there are plenty of people who will misinterpret Scripture uh, in order to have some gain for themselves. So that's what I would encourage us to do. Number one, recognize that we look to the whole counsel of Scripture. Uh, my pastor in college used to say, you can proof text anything. Hmm. So you can find one verse that will somehow make you feel like, yes, I can do whatever I want, whatever the case may be. But he said, when we look at the whole counsel of Scripture, God is clear that uh, we don't just pull a single verse out. That's like, for example, Philippians 4.13. Mm. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Great verse. Love it. It's Mm. one of my favorite verses. It does not mean that I can dunk a basketball through Christ who strengthens me. Mm -hmm. It does not mean that I can fly off of a corner of a building through Christ who strengthens me. The context is that I can endure times of difficulty and times of blessing because Christ strengthens me. And so we don't want to just pull a single verse out and, and, and build an entire theology around that single verse. We want to allow the Bible to help us understand the entire counsel of God's teaching. Yeah, those are great suggestions, Jeff. Both of them kind of bring to mind Bible commentaries from some of the publishers that you've mentioned. Yeah. So like I've got my trusty NKJV, which has commentary, but then also like references throughout the scriptures for any given passage that you're looking at, which yeah. is helpful if you're if you're stuck and you're like, where is this quoting from? Then it'll tell you, oh, this is quoting back from here. Oh, this is quoting from this. And so that really helps me in my study. Just right off the bat, I know that there have been people who have looked into this before and they know where to point you. That's right. So that'll take us into today's listener question. So listeners, if you have a question, just go to the description and fill out the form and the link or just go to the comments. So today's question is very simple. Why are stories in the Gospels not told in the same order? Well, it's a very simple and straightforward question, and the answer is a little bit more complex than the question itself, but it's a great question, and I think thinking believers need to ask that question because many unbelievers look at the fact that the Gospels are not perfect mirrors of one another to say, oh, well, then the Bible must not be true. Mm -hmm. The, The bottom line is this. God did not dictate the Bible to the human authors. So when you have the Gospels, you have four different authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, What you do not have is God speaking to them as I would speak to Siri on my phone as I'm dictating a text message. That's not how that worked. God used the unique perspective, the unique um, writing ability, the unique thought pattern of these men as 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 they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So he did not dictate the Word of God. He inspired the biblical authors to write the Word of God. And so what you have from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is you have four different authors writing from four different perspectives. And so it's football season. And one of the, the new realities of football season is the instant replay. Mm. And they, the instant replay can make a big deal, uh, make a big difference in a game. So you'll notice that if they're showing an instant replay in football or any sport, they're going to look at it from every different angle. Mm-hmm. And every different angle where they have a camera is going to give a different view. It's not that any of the views 
is wrong or untrue, but it's giving a different perspective. Sometimes a certain perspective is more favorable. So if you're trying to determine, did the, did the football cross the goal line? Mm-hmm. Um, then there's a certain perspective that will give that angle. But they're going to show you all the different angles of that play that's in question. Well, what you have with the Gospels is you have all the different angles of Jesus's life and ministry written to different audiences even. So most scholars believe that Mark was written first. Um, Mark is is short, sweet, to the point. It moves quickly. Mark loves the word immediately, mm-hmm. immediately, immediately, immediately. Um, Mark was written to a Roman audience, and he portrays Jesus as a powerful miracle worker uh, and servant. And most scholars believe that Mark, who was John Mark, was getting Peter's eyewitness account of the ministry of Jesus. Matthew comes from a different perspective. Matthew comes as a saved tax collector, but writing very much to show that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And so when you read Matthew's gospel, you get, and thus was fulfilled the scripture, which says, and I mean, how many times does Matthew kick back to the Old Testament to show Jesus is the king of the Jews? Then you have Dr. Luke, Luke the physician who accompanied Paul on the missionary journeys, who was a friend of John Mark's um, and who was a friend of the other apostles. But what's interesting is Luke gives us the portrayal of Jesus as the son of man. He wants us to see that Jesus is a human being. Luke is the one who tells us that the resurrected Jesus ate food. And I think that's so wonderful that the physician was concerned that we know he had a body mm-hmm. in his resurrection. He was not Casper the friendly ghost. He 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 was risen bodily. Uh, and then John. Now, John comes at it a different way. John was the last of the Gospels to be written, uh, probably written sometime between 70 and 90 A.D. And John is looking back at the events of Jesus's life And he's looking from the perspective of knowing that Jesus is the risen Son of God. So we see in John's gospel this portrayal of Jesus who is God in flesh among us, and we see it from the very beginning. And so we look at the first miracle at the wedding of Canaan and Galilee from the perspective that Jesus is God in flesh. We are beholding his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So so what you have in the Gospels are different perspectives of the same events meant to give us a multifaceted view of this singular life of Jesus. That can be frustrating sometimes (laughs) because for those of us who have more of an analytical mind, we would love to just say, well, Matthew told us this, and then Mark told us the exact same thing in the exact same way, and then Luke told us the exact same thing. But think about what we would be missing. There was a guy named Nikola Dimitrov, who is a scholar from Bulgaria, who was interviewed by Sean McDowell. Uh, Nikola Dimitrov wrote a book entitled The Four-in-One Gospel of Jesus. And what he did was to give an integrated chronological account of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it is a fascinating study. I haven't actually read it, but in hearing this interview and reading this interview, Dimitrov says, in a post-Enlightenment and predominantly secular society, many people argue that the four Gospels contradict each other, which in turn hurts the credibility of the whole Bible. This book that I've written, he says, proves beyond the shadow of a doubt that all these seeming contradictions are actually beautiful complementations. And so he talks about how those those eyewitness accounts of Jesus's ministry come together uh, in a beautiful way that don't contradict each other, but rather complement one another. 
Correct me if I'm wrong, but the Jewish writing style at that time especially wasn't to tell things necessarily in chronological order. No, not yeah. even close. Yeah. Their, 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 their purpose was much different. You know, we, we 21st century Americans, we wanted like journalistic reporting. Mm. They were not trying to be journalists. And that's a vitally important distinction. They weren't trying to say this happened and this happened and this happened. They were trying to say, look at what happened with Jesus. Quite frankly, one of the things I'm hopeful for uh, in glory is that we will be able to watch Jesus's whole life. Mm. I I think that could be phenomenal um, to see everything about the way that he lived in every moment. I think that that gives, gives me goosebumps just thinking about the possibility of being able to see all of that. Yeah, it's almost like the Passion of the Christ, the documentary. That's uh, that's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> Jeff, again, this has been really, really helpful today. Uh, the suggestions that you've given us for better Bible study are really helpful, and I'm looking forward to using them. Do you mind praying us out? I would love to. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we thank you that even though there are things in your Word that are hard to understand, that doesn't mean they're not true. And we're just thankful that, Lord, you are kind enough to give us your spirit, you are kind enough to give us one another to help each other, to learn, to grow, and to discern what are you saying through your word. And so, Lord, we pray that you would continually draw us close to you, that you would continually help us to look to your word, believing that it's true, and seeking to align our lives to what you've called us to do, what you've called us to be. So, Lord, we do ask that you would bless us. But Lord, we ask that you would bless us so that we might glorify you and be a blessing to everyone we meet. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to our channel. To submit a question about Sunday's sermon, the Bible, or walking with Jesus, click the link in the episode description. Our hosts today are Pastor Jeff Reynolds and myself, Jordan Upton. Our engineer is Elliot Beckley.